Today on State Scoop's Priorities Podcast from Scoop News Group, the race to eliminate the digital divide. Our goal is to be able to say we're not only the first state, but the first state not to have broadband challenges. Each and every home and roadway will have wireline service, fiber running down it. A next step in cybersecurity legislation. We need to know more about the nature and scope of the attacks that different entities face and what security measures are most effective in reducing their level of cyber risk. So to that end, we need to collect better data around the the cyber ecosystem. And the value of working with experienced partners in an expanding cloud ecosystem. There's really no compression algorithm for experience, so it absolutely makes sense to work with an experienced partner to get started quickly, avoid the mistakes that others have made, and start getting that return on investment immediately. Welcome to State Scoop's Priorities Podcast, brought to you today by Amazon Web Services, Thundercat, and DLT. Every Thursday, you'll get insights into the state and local government technology community. You'll hear from top leaders across the state and local world, as well as the latest news and trends ahead for the industry. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Here's what's happening this week. New York City Mayor Eric Adams wants an investigation of Illuminate Education, a software vendor for the Department of Education that experienced a data breach in January. The vendor says a breach potentially revealed personal data from 820,000 current and former students. The administration will refer the matter to the New York State Education Department's privacy officer, the NYPD, FBI, and the state's attorney general. Boston has a new CIO, Santiago Garces, a former tech and innovation executive in South Bend, Indiana, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, will take over the post in Mayor Michelle Wu's administration. Wu also appointed Julia Gutierrez as the city's new chief digital officer. Gutierrez spent five years with the Massachusetts Digital Service. A new Deloitte survey says many government leaders have shifted to long-term planning as the crisis of the COVID-19 pandemic begins to wane. The survey, which features input from government leaders in 23 countries, says agencies are trying to build more connected, inclusive, and resilient operations. Several states across the country are working on closing the digital divide. Delaware Governor John Carney has announced $56 million in funding for three companies in the first phase of a project to deliver high-speed internet to every home and business in the state. Delaware CIO Jason Clark tells State Scoop's Colin Wood how he's working on that effort. So the governor tasked uh, the Department of Technology and Information with putting together a strategic plan to address uh, the broadband deserts that exist in our state here in Delaware. Uh, So back in December of 2020, uh, we completed and published an edged out strategy that's part of our uh, strategic plan for broadband. Um, With that, we received ARPA funding. So Governor Carney back in October of 2021 committed $110 million towards that plan and eradicating broadband uh, deserts within our state here in Delaware. And so that's our primary role at the moment is to uh, put together, as a result of that, we put together, published and released a grant opportunity um, that was in accordance with the strategic plan that we put together with a, a multitude of stakeholders, I might add, across a number of industries, uh, businesses, and uh, um, political sectors within our state. Right. Could you, you know, you don't have to go into incredible detail, but could you provide what's in that strategy in a nutshell? Yeah, so I think there's three things. We have, uh, well, we, we started off in a very good position, uh, being the state of Delaware. One, we're, we're small in stature. We don't have a lot of uh, geographical uh, factors to consider with respect to deserts, mountains, or, or large waterways. And so we had the ingredients in the sense of uh, a state being well 
connected to begin with. We tend to be within the top three uh, states across the country uh, for broadband connectivity. So as we did our research and completed the strategic plan, we identified uh, 11,600 addresses that did not have an opportunity for wireline connection. And that essentially was where our current vendors uh, within the state uh, did not see it profitable uh, and, and didn't make business sense for them to complete investments to uh, rural areas within our state. So we uh, kind of did a three-phased approach here. One is to uh, do an edge out strategy, which leverages the vendors that exist in the state, extend their networks to the areas that need connectivity. Uh, we also looked at addressing some capacity concerns as we added on and built networks up over time. And then the third is kind of bridging the gap during this particular project, which we expect will take about 36 months to complete. Um, it provides the ability for us to continue a program we started during the pandemic called our Connect Delaware Students. And so that allows us, uh, this past year, there was 25,700, a little over 25,700 students that were connected either with like a fixed wireless product or in most cases, some form of MiFi device issued to those students uh, to ensure that they could complete their studies uh, from home and, and, and engage in, in the school that they needed to. So after this three-year program is finished, what will the, you know, assuming everything goes according to plan, what will the state's digital divide look like at that point? Uh, our goal is to be able to say we're not only the first state, but the first state not to have uh, broadband challenges. Uh, each and every home and roadway will have wireline service, uh, fiber running down it. Um, and the goal would be that uh, whether you are part of a community of 500 homes or a single home on a one-mile road, uh, that you would be able to call the vendor that supplies service to your home uh, and be treated equally in that process. Meaning that the, the some of the last mile or middle mile conversations would no longer be on the table. They will have been addressed and it will just be a traditional connection at that point in time. Is there any kind of future proofing going on when it comes to building out this infrastructure? Yeah, so we had a very diverse, and I would encourage you, uh, one of the things we're quite proud of in this process is our ability to communicate with the public. So we uh, partnered with our first map team here at the Department of Technology and Information. We have a GIS-based broadband hub. Uh, it can be found at broadband.delaware.gov along with our strategic plan and a number of other items. Uh, but what it does is it lists all of the addresses that we discovered in our research and it provides the ability to check uh, each citizen to check and see if their address is listed if they are fall if they feel they fall in one of these areas if they're not on the list they can add their name and we are uh, our goal is to incorporate them in the project as this goes on over the next 36 months um, and it will also be an opportunity for us to update along the way each of the phases that are taking place as, as various statements of work and projects are executed and brought online. Yeah. What else are you thinking about in terms of access to technology? So we incorporated a couple pieces of that into our uh, grant opportunity that we released. The first is that uh, there was a requirement of each of the vendors to do a matching 25% contribution uh, to the build out. The second was that uh, they, during the, the duration of these programs, uh, when receiving funds, that they ensure that they have programs to offer to those who, who may qualify for assisted service. So um, 
Comcast, Verizon, Mediacom, uh, three of the vendors that applied and were awarded in this process, all provide programs uh, to low-income families at a reduced rate, uh, which provides them with a service that's affordable uh, and puts it within reach of each of these families. In addition to that, we're looking at some of the other programs that have come out under the infra infrastructure uh, bill and looking at ways of kind of marketing and making sure that those homeowners or those individuals in those situations realize what uh, funding mechanisms are available for them to um, acquire the service at a reduced rate or, or a paid rate uh, for a period of time. Right, right. It's one thing to have access to broadband, but I think there are surveys showing that lots of people you know, still don't know how to use the internet or computers or whatever. Is that something that your office spends any time working on? Uh, so our office uh, does not have that as a task, I would say, is something that we are actively attempting to solve. But I will tell you that we are involved in a number of discussions with some of the um, third party uh, and nonprofits within our state who are actively looking at ways to kind of develop almost like a... Uh, a citizen help desk uh, to help educate those individuals who traditionally have not had access and to your point may not know what is on the other side uh, that they should be taking advantage of or how to even engage. Uh, so that is something that is a conversation, an ongoing conversation. It is not something that we have uh, completely built into our plan as of yet. At the moment, we are uh, uber focused on getting the services to the home so that we can, endure, can, can actually engage in that challenge next. So the digital divide issue has been something that people have talked about for so long that I'm especially interested in what it's going to mean once it's finally closed. How do you how do you think about that? Like in three years in your state when the digital divide is closed and it's broadband access becomes a non-issue. Are you just is it going to be out of sight, out of mind? You just is something you can thankfully take for granted or is it going to be replaced by another problem what how how do you think this will change the landscape in terms of your concerns as a state cio well i think it will uh continue the drive that we've seen created through the pandemic towards online services uh, so we have a digital government project underway within our state as well we believe that the adoption will be increased as more homes uh, have availability to come online and to consume state services online versus in line, as we say. And um, I think that will be a key driver. I think what's on the heels of this for us and something that we are also focused on is understanding where our cellular uh, deserts, if you will, exist within our state. Uh, both of those we view from a public safety, public health perspective, much like we do with the uh, broadband service. Jason Clark, CIO of Delaware. You can read more about Delaware's broadband efforts in today's show notes and at statescoop.com. I'm Jake Williams, host of Statescoop's Priorities Podcast. Next week on the show, New York CIO Tony Riddick talks about the state's efforts to build a stronger cyber posture. You can subscribe to the podcast at prioritiespodcast.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Representative Jim Langevin, a Democrat from Rhode Island, is working on the next phase of legislation in Congress centered around cybersecurity. Langevin is the co-chair of the Congressional Cybersecurity Caucus and chair of the House Armed Services Cyber Innovative Technologies and Information Systems Subcommittee. 
He's also one of the leaders of the Cybersecurity Solarium Commission, and he's retiring from Congress this year. Langevin says his efforts to get other members of Congress to pay attention to cybersecurity is beginning to get some results. While it's taken some time, those efforts have really started to pay off in a big way over the last few years. My colleagues in Congress have really started to see the need to make cybersecurity a priority. However, I can't take all the credit for that change. Unfortunately, much of this growing recognition is due to the significant cybersecurity challenges, attacks, and breaches that we still face as a country to this day. The rise of ransomware is near the top of that list. It's perpetrated a significant increase in the severity and frequency of cyber incidents that affect Americans every day. It's also widened the scope of potential victims. Our hospitals, schools, businesses, universities, local governments, and other community institutions are under constant assault from malicious cyber actors. Ransomware has also changed the way in which Americans experience the cost of these attacks. The compromise and threat of personally identifiable information is still a major and widespread concern. More and more often, cyber attacks are disrupting the services that we rely on in our daily lives. And it's not just the consequences of cyber attacks that are expanding. The transition to remote work and remote learning that was necessitated by the COVID-19 pandemic has changed the composition of many networks, creating new apertures of vulnerability for hackers to exploit. For many state and local governments, along with schools and institutions of higher education, the problem is often compounded even further by the prevalence of legacy IT systems throughout their networks. This aging digital infrastructure leaves them incredibly vulnerable to cyber attacks. As this technical debt is carried forward, their information systems and the services that rely upon those systems will become more and more susceptible to cyber-enabled disruptions. And that's something that should be setting off alarm bells for policymakers everywhere. The past few years have illustrated how important these entities are to our country. A ransomware attack against a state or local government could seriously impair its day-to-day -day functionality and jeopardize uh, Americans' access to things like vital services such as unemployment insurance, uh, unemployment insurance, or, or vaccine scheduling. Or in the case of a local school, university, or other educational institution, a ransomware attack could seriously jeopardize that institution's ability to fulfill its academic mission, especially in a time where many students have had to take classes virtually. Improving the cybersecurity of state, local, tribal, and territorial governments and higher education institutions is critical to ensuring these institutions can continue to provide the vital services upon which we all rely. That's not something these entities can do or should though take on alone. Uh, across all areas of cyber policy, we're grappling with the idea of shared responsibility. And I think it applies here as well. Eric Goldstein, CIS's Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity said it best. And I quote, the responsibility needs to fall on the entity most able to mitigate the risk, end quote. I think this is a very useful conceptual framework. In the context of our state and local governments and our institutes of higher education or local school districts, I think it points to the capacity that uh, uh, cloud service providers have to help manage cyber risk for these organizations. But the federal government has a clear role to play here as well by providing the resources required to help our governments and schools make necessary investments in their cybersecurity, including through IT modernization. It also means helping them understand the cyber threats they face and the steps they can take to mitigate those threats. So I'm glad to be able to say that uh, we've made significant progress here. The Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, signed into law by President Biden last year, included one of the biggest investments in state and local government cybersecurity 
that the federal government has ever made. It created the state and local uh, cybersecurity grant program, which provided $1 billion for state and local governments to use in shoring up their networks. And just a few weeks ago, in passing legislation to fund the federal government, Congress dramatically increased the funding for the Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center. The MSISAC, as it's known, is a crucial organization supporting state and local cybersecurity, offering incident response capabilities, cyber threat uh, advisories, tabletop exercise, malicious domain blocking and reporting, awareness and education materials, and other essential services for state and local governments. The increase in funding will allow it to expand these essential missions. So there are significant uh, steps forward, uh, but of course, I wouldn't be here speaking with you today if the job was finished. We have so much more work yet to do. Though through the rest of uh, this year in Congress uh, will be my, my last, I believe that we have a real window of opportunity to continue raising the bar in our state and local governments and in our local school districts and institutions of higher education when it comes to cybersecurity. I'll be looking for ways to make the most of that opportunity until my very last day in office. So one area that I'm currently exploring is how we can improve our empirical understanding of how well our cybersecurity policies and programs and technologies are actually working. We need to know more about the nature and scope of the attacks that different entities face and what security measures are most effective in reducing their level of cyber risk. So to that end, we need to collect beta, better data around the, the cyber ecosystem, including information about cyber incidents and the controls put in place to prevent them. A solution that I'm exploring to this challenge is creating a Bureau of Cyber Statistics. So this is a recommendation from the Cyberspace Solarium Commission for a statistical agency that would collect, process, analyze, and disseminate essential statistical data on cybersecurity. Ultimately, the goal is to help us better understand what's working and what's not in order to help us understand where to spend our next cybersecurity dollar. With a better understanding of causes and consequences of various types of cyber incidents and a clear picture of what is working in preventing those incidents and what is not, state and local governments and institutions of higher education and local school districts would be better able to take more informed steps to manage their cybersecurity risks. And the federal government would be able to more efficiently provide the resources to help them to do it. Creating a Bureau of Cyber Statistics will be a priority of mine for this year, but I'll also be on the lookout for other opportunities to support state and local governments and local school districts along with higher education institutions as they work to defend themselves from cyber threats. And I sincerely hope to be able to work with all of you in that effort. Representative Jim Langevin speaking at State Scoop and Ed Scoop Cybersecurity Modernization Summit. You can find Langevin's full keynote and more on demand in links in today's show notes and at statescoop.com. State and local agencies continue to prioritize modernization of IT systems. Nick Perez is the Chief Technology Officer for Cloud at Thundercat Technology, and Brian Sheffley is the Manager of Partner Solution Architects at Amazon Web Services. They're working alongside government agencies on their move to the cloud. Sheffley and Perez tell Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash where state and local government customers are seeing early results. So our state and local government customers at AWS Worldwide Public Sector are using AWS in a variety of different ways to reduce their total cost of ownership and improve their resilience in the cloud. And so we're seeing state and local government agencies do everything from revolutionize the way they're delivering transportation services, secure and improve the voter registration process, 
um, just a, a wide variety of ways that uh, organizations are either fighting fraud payments or improving the delivery of the services that they're using to uplift the communities and the constituents that they serve. And then for agencies that are still deciding how best to capitalize on the cloud, where are you seeing the best opportunities for early returns on investment? And why does it make sense to work with an experienced partner in the larger ecosystem of cloud developers and providers? Yeah, so at AWS, we're fond of saying that speed disproportionately matters in business, and the same is true for public sector so the best opportunities for early returns on investment are to get started with workloads that are easily migrated to the cloud, whether that's backup and disaster recovery, consolidation of remote and branch office file storage services in the cloud, just these lightweight workloads that have immediate return on investment by moving them to the cloud uh, can really help organizations build a strong foundation for adapting more cloud services in the future and modernizing the way they deliver information services going forward. And there's really no compression algorithm for experience either. So it absolutely makes sense for a customer to work with an experienced partner who has seen projects be very successful, has seen where projects typically fall down and provide just critical, critical guidance that customers need to get started quickly, avoid the mistakes that others have made, and start getting that return on investment immediately. So Nick, let me bring you in here. What are the primary benefits that state and local agencies are likely to realize by starting a cloud migration using a specialty cloud service firm like yours? Absolutely. So the two key benefits that we help agencies with are really agility and cost predictability. AWS is the market leader in the cloud market and agencies are accelerating their ability to deliver business outcomes because of how many out of the box API services that Amazon is, is enabling, is providing them and giving them access to. And secondarily is really uh, unlimited capacity. As a traditional architect, you know, we spend a lot of time capacity planning, designing systems for peak usage. And when you use a cloud provider such as AWS, you have basically virtually unlimited amount of scale. You know, you have unlimited amount of storage, networking, compute. And so when you are designing a system for peak, those are very, very challenging things to do. When you're buying on-premise hardware, you typically have a, a cap on the amount of finances and you have a cap on the amount of footprint you have in a data center. You don't have that when accessing a cloud provider. And then thirdly, really, IT consumption models have evolved. Right? And there are now powerful alternatives to the, that traditional upfront purchase. You can rent equipment, you can subscribe to equipment, and then the traditional model is you pay as you go. This whole movement of capital expense to an operational expense, and we're helping agencies do that on a daily basis, they really become fast, agile, and really, again, speed to market of delivering outcomes. And then, Nick, can you offer maybe a couple of examples of where a public sector agency has indeed achieved faster and more effective outcomes and greater agility working with a specialty cloud service firm? Absolutely. Yeah. So obviously the most recent one with everybody moving out of the workplace is the virtual desktop infrastructure. Being able to create those desktops in the cloud, being able to secure them and patch them centrally and having storage, that has been the number one use case that everyone's been after with this virtual workforce and be able to keep people working. Disaster recovery, that was really with the very first use case that we help customers with, and it still is a major player of having that assurance that you have conformity between two systems. 
so that you have, you know, typical disaster recovery, you know, you have a secondary data center or location, you try to have parity of 100% compliance between what you have in production and what you have. But it's very difficult because you've got equipment just sitting there kind of in dormant, waiting for something, an event to happen. And the cloud enables you to be able to do that and have that parity and continuity, but have systems that are just waiting for an event, but they're actually switched off. And then thirdly, development and test. So that's, that, that would be, again, a key use case of where you have software developers that want access to environments and scale and, uh, and ultimately be able to shut those off. That's how we, you know, we help customers save a lot of their operational expense of leveraging the cloud because they're able to turn off those environments. You know, you turn them off at 6 p.m. at night and then they come on automated at 8 a.m. in the morning. So you get, you get that kind of... An agency doesn't think of that. When they're on-premise, we're virtual machines. They don't think about turning stuff off, right? But that's the power of the cloud is you, you only consume that cloud asset when you need it. So like when a developer is writing code or when you're actually testing a system or, and or actually, you know, you're consuming it. Just like you do when you plug something in the wall, you know, at, at home or in the office, that's when you're consuming the power and that's when you start paying for it. Amazon provides that very, very same flexible, convenient feature where when you plug it in, you consume it and you're being metered. And then when you unplug it or you turn it off, those costs stop. Well, finally, gentlemen, what parting recommendation would you suggest public sector leaders consider as they think about their IT and cloud investment strategies? Brian, maybe we'll start with you. So I think there are really three key takeaways that listeners should have uh, when we talk about getting started with a cloud investment strategy. And number one is you really want to start with a test case. Innovation doesn't always have to take a big bang approach, and sometimes it's best for transformation to happen gradually. And that's exactly what the Commonwealth of Virginia learned during the pandemic. Virginia launched an opioid pilot project and new workforce employer portal, and they used those initiatives as test beds for innovation and to build a solid data governance framework across all the state government. The pilots brought together diverse data sets from the state's different departments and partners, which ultimately positioned Virginia really well for the data integration strategies and level of collaboration it needed when it went out to implement as part of its COVID-19 response. Second lesson would be begin with the end user in mind. And anytime you're deploying a new tool or a new service, governments are really often more results focused than customer focused. And a lot of this has to do with stringent reporting requirements, compliance, and funding requirements that they need to follow. But institutional inertia has also played a significant role. And what we've really seen that's encouraging is the state of Rhode Island and how they reimagined how they delivered services. And they decided to retool their existing unemployment insurance system to handle the pandemic-related surge in unemployment claims. And they used our Amazon's working backwards process to ensure what the state was building would effectively serve their end users. And ultimately, this product development process involved organization envisioning what its completed product would look like and the capabilities and features that it would have. And lastly, um, it's really important to work with an experienced cloud provider to bolster agility and security. The state of New York Power Authority worked with partners, worked with AWS to deliver an AI and ML powered solution that protects New York state utilities from hacking and, and other threats that exist out there in the world. And so those three things, which is, you know, work with a partner, you know, begin with your end user in mind and start with a test case. You know, as I say that the best time to start was yesterday, but the second best time is right now. Well, those are some great recommendations and examples as well. Nick, do you have any uh, parting recommendations for state and local leaders? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like Brian mentioned, get started, right? There's quite a lot to learn. Pick a workload that is easy to digest. It doesn't have to be mission critical, but something that's important, something that you can get the right stakeholders behind, right? But get started. Don't forget to get the information security team involved right at the start. You're going to want access to data. They're going to want to place that data in the cloud or Active Directory or, you know, anything, you know, access to stuff that's on premise, right? You're going to be extending your security perimeter to the cloud provider. The cloud providers have been offering these solutions now for, I mean, Amazon for 15 years, right? And they're very mature. They have lots of best practices for how to operate and obviously how to secure these workloads. But there's, I mean, there's three real key concepts the agency's may not have you know real familiarity today is you know your management of a not to exceed contract and a not in labor service that's the kind of key aspect here is it's a, a contract that's typically set monthly in arrears billing and you set a not to exceed amount that you're going to use and that's got to figure out how to estimate what that might that amount might be these are non labor services you know amazon has 200 plus services that you can activate in your technical team so being able to track that accurately Right. You are managing vendor now. You're managing a vendor and you're managing service level agreements. So that may not be something that someone's very familiar with. So I would be happy to help any agency with their cloud vision, um, cloud strategy. We look at it as application or workload candidacy to see if it's a fit for the cloud. And, and ultimately just discuss how which vehicles are available for them to access for these non-labor services and how to work with the contracting officers to figure out how they can get their technical teams to estimate it accurately and then be able to manage it uh, against those funds because it's a metered service uh, for any, and you can pretty much figure any of those 200 services as you need them and you leave them running, they can become quite costly. So we'd be happy to help. Thundercats Nick Perez and AWS's Brian Sheffley talking with Scoop News Group's Wyatt Cash. You can read more about how agencies are prioritizing modernization at statescoop.com and in today's show notes. This show is a product of Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helped put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Until next week, I'm your host, Jake Williams. 